Thirty years ago, a giant corporation decided to take on the little guys. This was a time before activist consumers and Twitter storms, and that mismatch of power gave courage to a company whose Golden Arches logo had already become synonymous with the strength and the reach of capitalism. And it's here that I want to start this week's story, with the case of the McLibel II. It's an important case for many reasons, but the reason we're starting here is it's the case that made Keir Starmer's name as a young lawyer. Even with limited resources, even unable to bring all the evidence you want to to court, you can win significant victories um, through a belief in what you're saying, a belief in free speech, uh, and the courage to continually put your, your case forward. This is Keir Starmer in a previous life, a radical young lawyer fighting in the courts for human rights. It all feels a really long way away from where we are today, because one year into his leadership of the Labour Party, his approval ratings are fading fast. Labour members who voted for him are not sure what they got. Hints of the old Keir Starmer occasionally peep through, like when he's used his legal training to take Boris Johnson apart in the Commons. And standing up every week saying it's a stunning success is kidding no one. That isn't giving people confidence in the system. They would want the Prime Minister who stands up and says, there are problems and this is what I'm going to do about them. But sometimes he just seems lacking in passion, in charisma, in his ability to connect and in refusing to take a side. It's a long way away from how he introduced himself when he was running to become the next leader of the Labour Party after Corbyn's failure at the 2019 election. His campaign video then showed him standing up for striking miners, for poll tax protesters, for environmentalists and anti-war campaigners. Keir defended the print workers at Wapping. Keir stood up for the protesters who were trying to stop the widening of the M3. I've spent my life fighting for justice standing up for the powerless and against the powerful. And all that is true. But what does he stand for today? In the age of political showmen, many of them on the opposing political bench, he's really struggled to establish himself as a character. And as we know, all good stories need strong characters. Now, if we go back to basics in storytelling terms, character comes down to action over time. And so that's what we're doing this week. We're investigating Keir Starmer's action over time, his career. Because although he's only been in politics for five years, he was a lawyer for nearly three decades before that. And the cases that he chose, the decisions that he took, tell us more about him now than any number of political speeches. I'm Basha Cummings, and this week, with the essential help of the journalist Gabby Hinsliff, we're investigating the lawyer who wants to be Prime Minister. What his legal career tells us about his personal values and political character. We're asking whether a person who succeeds in the law by being reasonable and rational, who rises to the top of the criminal justice system by taking one side and then the other, can make it as a politician. On this week's Slow Newscast, the reasonable case of Keir Rodney Starmer. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. So to 1990 and to two activists, a postman called Dave Morris and a gardener called Helen Steele. Gabby, you've been digging into this story for weeks now and you've spoken to 
a huge number of sources on the record, people who have known and worked with Starmer since the early days, who worked on key cases with him and who have watched him change. Can you just fill us in on what happened in the courts? So this is a case of five activists originally from a little green protest group called London Greenpeace, no relation to the the big famous charity, which in the late 1980s uh, was protesting against all sorts of things. It was an anti-capitalist group. It was an environmentalist group, sort of radical protest group. And it started a campaign against McDonald's, which involved handing out leaflets outside McDonald's restaurants, um, accusing it of, of underpaying its workers and bad environmental practices and cruelty to animals in the food chain and exploiting children through its advertising and so on and so on and so on. And in 1990, they're served with libel writs from McDonald's saying, you know, pack it in. And three of them at that point gave in, apologised. Two of them, David Morris and Helen Steele, didn't want to apologise and wanted to fight the case in the courts. And obviously they couldn't afford lawyers, no money for lawyers. So the odds were completely stacked against them. You know, this is a very complex thing to take on by yourself and they had no legal training. But someone gave them a name of a friendly barrister called Kia Starmer, who offered to help them for free, give them some background advice so that they could represent themselves in court. Kia actually drafted our initial pleadings. That's Helen Steele. Because we had no idea how to submit a defence or anything. And basically, if Keir hadn't offered to write the defence for us, draft the document, we would never um, have have been able to to fight the case. But this was a case where the odds were firmly stacked against them. I mean, actually, at the time, McDonald's were threatening to um, have us jailed. If they got an... they They were applying for an injunction. And if we had breached the injunction by continuing the campaign we could have been jailed. So yes, there was a threat. There was also a threat that we could be made bankrupt because, you know, the complexity of the libel law means that just their lawyers, even though we were unrepresented, the cost of their lawyers would be enough to bankrupt us if we didn't win every single thing. They were creating this climate of fear Mm. where only their rubbish propaganda advertising would be the only thing that people would hear about McDonald's. So um, that that was the real threat um, that society would be brainwashed by corporate propaganda. For them, this wasn't ever just about McDonald's. It was about standing up to global capitalism. Somehow they got to trial, and it turned out to be the longest libel case in English history. And uh, seven years later, after they'd basically become pretty much full-time unpaid lawyers, the two of them, the judge found for them on not all of the points raised in the libel case, but four of them. You know, this was a victory that no one ever expected uh, to complete amateurs to win. And it had repercussions around the world. You know, this was a case that everyone was following. It led to a sort of, it aired their arguments far more widely than they could ever have done by distributing leaflets outside McDonald's. And it went down in history as sort of the great famous corporate PR disaster of all time for McDonald's. But the case wasn't finished. Starmer then acted for them in the European courts, challenging the refusal to grant legal aid in libel cases with significant public interest implications. And in 2005, they won. So the European court verdict in 2005 was a victory declaring the trial had been unfair and an attack on the right of freedom of expression. And certainly it put off corporations from suing anybody else, suing campaigners anyway, and that people, that corporations were being advised by their law, lawyers not to do a McLeibel. So it was very effective in that way. But I think most importantly, it galvanised opposition to corporations because... For the first time in history, a corporation was on trial during the whole case. Of course, the longer it went on, the worse it was for McDonald's. And I think that that really opened a whole can of worms about the power of corporations and what they were doing for profit around the world. But for Keir Starmer, it was a test of what he considered two of the most important human rights, the right to protest and the right to the freedom of speech. And if McDonald's had won, it could have had a chilling impact on activism more broadly. And here was this young, radical Starmer taking on the establishment. So the McLeibel two won, even though they were hopelessly outgunned. But this wasn't just a case of a global corporation with expensive lawyers against two little guys. It was actually worse than that. 
They didn't know it at the time, but McDonald's had hired private investigators to infiltrate London Greenpeace, and all of that emerged in court. What didn't come out in court was that they had also been targeted by undercover police officers who were keeping them under secret surveillance. All of that and something much worse would emerge later. The McLibel case really built Keir Starmer's reputation and he became known for a series of human rights test cases. He was the go-to lawyer for liberty and he worked pro bono on death penalty cases in the Caribbean. But much of the surprise of a lot of his legal colleagues, in 2008, the radical lawyer opened up a new chapter in his life and in our story. He moved to the heart of the establishment and got the job as Director of Public Prosecutions at the spearhead of the Crown Prosecution Service. Here, he would be consulted by government over key criminal justice policy. He would help guide which crimes are prioritised for prosecutions, and he would be the face of politically sensitive, high-profile cases. So after years trying to bring change through painstaking legal battles, he was now on the inside of the justice system. It's here I want to bring Gabby back in and ask, what kind of approach did he take to the job? So if you remember back to the summer of 2011, the Times newspaper in particular was starting to run stories about what were then called grooming gangs, you know, these cases of girls, often quite, often very young girls, often runaways, often girls who were in care, being sexually exploited by groups of much older men who convinced them that they were their boyfriends. And as these stories were running, the CPS had just appointed as regional prosecutor in the north a man called Nazir Afsal, who had a reputation in the CPS for going after cases where, you know, sort of things that weren't being taken seriously by the criminal justice system, crimes that weren't being recognised. And this obviously fell into, into that category, started asking around the office, you know, does anyone know of any cases like this around here? And one of the female lawyers remembered a case three years before in Rochdale. The local prosecutor decided not to take the case forward. They decided that the victim was not credible. And this happened often with the grooming gang cases because the girls had led difficult lives and the police in many cases didn't take them seriously. So he reopened the case and that led to a prosecution. The case which centres on Rochdale involving the grooming and abuse of teenage girls has finally ended. Nine men have been convicted of exploiting vulnerable young girls and trafficking them for sex. The nine members of a paedophile gang convicted of sexually exploiting teenage girls. This has been a fantastic result for British justice. These victims have been through the most horrendous of crimes. And at that point, you know, it was, it was potentially quite embarrassing for the CPS because they'd obviously dropped this case before and, and had, you know, successfully prosecuted. So it was clear they'd made a mistake initially. And there is obviously a potential temptation at that point to brush it all under the carpet and make it go away. But what uh, Nazir Afsal told me was that it was Keir Starmer, of course, by then DPP, running the CPS, who said, no, you know, if we've got it wrong in this case, we have probably got it wrong in other cases and let's go out and find them. One of the things that we did in the Rossdale case, or I did, was to reverse a decision that had been previously taken, not not to prosecute. And so Keir said, look, that can't be the only one we got wrong. What about the cases that other cases that didn't get to the stage where we prosecuted or we dropped or whatever it may be? So he set up a national panel, which was chief constables, myself, a couple of other chief prosecutors, he chairing it. Uh, and that panel invited police officers and police prosecutors from around the country to refer cases that they had concerns about from the past, you know, non-recent cases. We called them historic then, we don't do that anymore. And so we were now looking at cases 10 years, 20 years beforehand, and revisiting them and deciding whether or not we should reinvestigate them or the police should reinvestigate them, or whether we should simply change, change the decision not to prosecute to one to prosecute. Uh, because it was essential that we put right our mistakes. For Keir, being director of public prosecutions was a chance to affect change from within the system. And from that, you know, opens the floodgates, not just to groom more grooming gang prosecutions. I mean, we've seen, I don't know, dozens of them now, but also to a whole sort of buried episode of historic sex crimes where people presumably would have thought they'd got away with it. And that's when you see, you know, the big name prosecutions, Gary Glitter, Rolf Harris, Stuart Hall, but also so many people coming forward with, with allegations about childhood sex abuse that Theresa May sets up a public inquiry into it. So, you know, and that led from then, you also see 
Keir Starmer at CPS changing the way these cases are prosecuted in the future. So, you know, he changes the definition of what makes credible victim because the CPS had guidelines on, on, you know, what sort of tests a victim had to pass before this. you thought you could bring this case before court. And he said to his prosecutors, you know, bring the more difficult cases, the cases where you don't think a jury will be sympathetic. Try them. They were untouchable, or they thought they were. And they, uh, no reason why, why they shouldn't think that, because having decided not to prosecute these cases overtly... Uh, we're giving them license to do what they want. You know, the Russia case being a case in point. When the initial allegation was made in 2008, it was one victim, girl A, and two alleged perpetrators. Once that had been decided not to prosecute, by the time it came to me in 2011, there were nine perpetrators and 47 victims. So, you know, the decision not to prosecute led to 45, 46 other girls suffering uh, and more perpetrators getting involved. So... That's the consequence of not doing your job properly. We, we had this ridiculous model of a victim that she had to come out of a nunnery, that uh, she must have been fighting off the rapist. All that, you know, the, all those myths and stereotypes. And we had to challenge ourselves on that. And additionally, up to... which There was another major policy change in 2013, which, again, 2012-2013, which he brought about, um, which was that not, we shouldn't just be focusing on the credibility of the victim... We should also be focusing on the credibility of the suspect. So if you're looking at her mobile phone history or her Facebook or social media history, you should be looking at the suspect's social media history, his phone history, people who know him. So actually, you're, you're looking at both sides of the investigation. By this stage, the CPS was facing severe cuts as a result of the coalition government's austerity programme. Cuts, incidentally, that Starmer didn't resist, Dominic Grieve told us. And these were expensive, complex prosecutions. But Afsal says that they were important enough to Starmer that he made sure that they were resourced. The cases also led to changes in the way that sex offences involving vulnerable victims were handled in court. Yeah, we, we also work with the ju- uh, judiciary. Do two major things with the judiciary. One is that we brought in a video that juries will see before a trial which talks to them about consent. Prior to that, it didn't happen before that. And the second thing was the pr- trial process itself. In the Rochdale case, girl A gave evidence for six days. She was cross-examined by 11 barristers, nine of them calling her a liar over and over again. Uh, that is the most traumatic thing you can imagine. It achieves nothing. And so again, at the, only at the level that Keir could do it, I couldn't do this, uh, but we, we discussed discussing with the judiciary about the process itself, as a result of which we now have something called ground rules hearings. So before a trial starts, the judge looks at the evidence and says, right, there's nine barristers in this room. One of you can ask questions of this woman or girl. And having heard her evidence, read her evidence, you have 45 minutes. And that, putting a time limit on it, so it, there's no badgering and no regurgitation and no re-traumatising, means that all you're doing is focusing on the quality of the evidence and you're not able to destroy a witness, uh, which sadly the process did over and over again. And so we changed, those, you know, there are two major significant changes to the way judiciary works and, and they were brought about under his leadership. Gabby, what do you think this shows us? I think it illustrates this idea of his that he could bring change from within more easily than he could from outside an organisation. As a jobbing lawyer, kind of just bringing case after case, you're not going to achieve these kind of structural changes. But I think it also shows you an emotionally engaged Starmer here. I mean, Nazir Asal told me that that Keir was apoplectic about the way these girls have been treated. You know, it wasn't just another day in the office to him. This was something in which his emotions were invested. There's one more big episode that we want to talk about from Starmer's time at the CPS. So this is in August 2011, and it started with uh, the death of a suspected gangster called Mark Duggan, who was shot dead by armed police who surrounded the cab he was travelling in. Riots break out in London. We begin with the violence in Britain that is only getting worse. The situation is complete anarchy down here in uh, in Peckham. Eight police officers in hospital after major disturbances at Tottenham in North London. And mass sort of panic, really, public alarm. You know, the police were so stretched that it looked as if they were losing control. Huge public uproar, political uproar. Uh, the CPS responds quite robustly. There are all-night court sittings to process this sort of huge volume of defendants. You know, the police cells are, are full to bursting. And... 
then the sentences start to come out and there were there was controversy you know there were some sort of alarming headlines about the kind of sentences that were starting to be handed down you know sort of 16 months for stealing an ice cream from a branch of patisserie valerie in manchester you know these were not the sort of sentences that people associated with that kind of crime and and so there begins to be a sort of conversation about well hang on you know it was disproportionately young black men who were being convicted in riots sparked by the death of a black man for which no police officer ever stood trial or, or was held accountable. And, and that, for some communities, that was seen as an example of all the reasons that they distrusted the police. And, you know, on the other side of the ledger, the argument is, well, this was a sort of terrifying episode for the general public during which people were frightened to come out of their homes. You know, it was terrifying for shopkeepers who were sort of stormed by kind of mobs breaking into their shops, you know, and, and the, the sentences and the sort of criminal justice response was a reaction to that. It was a reaction to, you know, this had been a terrifying episode um, in which the sentences needed to reflect the violence used and needed to serve as deterrence. People need to put themselves back in Salford and North London uh, in the summer of 2011. Uh, I, where I live in, in Manchester, I had he- helicopters over me. I didn't know whether it was safe to go out the door. Um, this was not a straightforward theft. It was theft in certain circumstances. And so the only thing that we did different as an organisation, and again, Kit, I started it when Keir was supportive nationally, was just put before the court what we call community impact statements. This was a, a Blair initiative. It was a legislative change that enabled that to do that. Everybody's heard of victim impact statements. So if you're a victim, the judge sees how it's impacted on you. What we said was that the, the law allows us to do this. And so we got community impact statements. So there were statements from members of the community in Salford or Manchester or wherever they may be uh, saying the impact that the events of that day or those days had on them. The judge saw that. So they were then sentencing these individuals with the context and the backdrop of people's fear of the fact that, all right, you know, they may have only stolen X, Y, or Z, but it meant that person could never, never, couldn't work in their shop for weeks or months on end afterwards, you know? And so the judges were allowed to take that into account. By law, all that we were doing was giving the judge as much information as possible. And so I don't have any qualms about those decisions at all. I think here you see almost the hard end of being DPP and and particularly for someone who would go on to be a Labour politician. You know, we saw in the Rochdale case someone who was on the side of vulnerable victims against uh, sort of serial sexual predators. And that's, it was a groundbreaking position to be in, but it was also, you know, it's a politically comfortable position to be in. And I think the London riots are, are showing something different. They're showing Keir Starmer grappling with the hard end of, of criminal justice. And it's a case that people will come back to in future years when they're asking themselves, you know, whose side was Keir on? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. 
So let's just take a moment here to review. The McLibel 2 taking on a corporate giant. The Rochdale grooming case where vulnerable young girls were targeted and then found their cases being disregarded because prosecutors and police felt they wouldn't make credible witnesses. And then finally, the riots of 2011 and the prosecutions that all flowed from the police shooting of a black suspect. I want to return to Gabby and explore the significance of these three cases that we've really focused in on. Gabby, can you tell me why you chose them? There are so many moments that we could have chosen, so many, you know, big high profile cases. But I think these are the ones where you see Starmer's past and present collide. So they tell us a lot about issues that matter to him then and, and matter to him now. They tell you about how he operates within system. A lot of people aren't sure they know what Starmer stands for. You know, some of the decisions he's taken as leader, opposing immediate tax rises or having press conferences in front of a union jack, you know, leave Labour members who voted for him wondering quite what happened to the radical socialists that they were they were being sold. Um, and a lot of the voters that Labour needs to win back still aren't quite sure who he is. I mean, if you think about Jeremy Corbyn, he prided himself on never having changed his mind about anything, still having all the same views that he held half a century ago. And you can see that as evidence of principle, you can see it as evidence of stubbornness, but it means you know where you are. But Starmer definitely prides himself on changing his mind when the facts change. You know, at 58, he doesn't stand by everything he believed in his 20s. He was on Desert Island Discs last November and Lauren Laverne asked him about the views he expressed in his 20s when he was writing for a short-lived sort of quasi-Marxist magazine called Socialist Alternatives. And certainly I started by thinking I had all the answers. And as I've grown up, I've learnt the power of saying, I don't know, let's have a look at that. And that's, that's been a very important lesson for me. And are you prepared to say that as a leader? Oh, no, I'm prepared to say it and do say it. I think it's very important to say I don't know. The best decisions that leaders make are those that are fully challenged by other people. And um, I think the power of saying I don't know, the power of looking at a decision and saying, is that actually right? I should say his music choices aren't that bad. A bit of Northern Soul and Orange Juice from his younger days. Beethoven twice to remind him of his wedding day and his dad, Jim Reeves for his mum and a bit of Stormzy for his kids. He's one of those people who wants to change things from inside the system, not smash it up and start again. And he was also sort of, he achieved change quite seamlessly, I think. He was one of those people who makes other people think it was all their idea. He's not confrontational. But this is also someone who, when he joined the very left-wing Haldane Society of Socialist Lawyers, suggested they drop socialist from the name, which went down extraordinarily badly. And he was the defence lawyer who helped get Private Lee Clegg off a murder charge. And this is a British soldier convicted in the early 1990s over the fatal shooting of two teenage joyriders in Northern Ireland. So it's a hugely controversial case on the left. And there was, you know, great sort of consternation among his sort of left-wing legal friends when he took that case. And as head of the CPS, he came in under a Labour government, but he had a perfectly smooth relationship with David Cameron's coalition government. He played his part in implementing austerity cuts at the CPS. And when I interviewed the then Tory Attorney General Dominic Grieve, who's his main sort of day-to-day contact in that government, Dominic Grieve absolutely sings his praises. You know, he really is not easy to pigeonhole. And that, I think, is what people struggle with now. Part of the journey he went on in his career was from the idealist human rights lawyer to the director of public prosecutions, which is quite a leap and leaves you wondering, was he really ever that radical? So let's get back to the McLibel 2, because this case really shows us how far Starmer has come. And as I said earlier, London Greenpeace had been infiltrated by undercover cops. And in fact, shockingly, the man that Helen Steele was living with when she was served the libel writ, someone that she thought was a fellow committed activist, turned out to be an undercover cop. I was living with him at the time that I got the writ from McDonald's and um, he picked me up from meetings that we had with Keir Starmer. He, I, you know, obviously I talked to him about how we were fighting the case and what we plan to do. He, he actually tried to persuade me not to fight the case. After the McLibel trial began, Helen's boyfriend vanished, pleading a breakdown. When she tried to trace him, she realised that everything he had told her was, in her words, a pack of lies. After he disappeared, I 
I, well, I was extremely worried about him. He, he kind of feigned a mental breakdown at the time he left. And I was extremely worried about him. I still, I, I was still in love with him as well. And so I tried to find him and basically everything that I found, uh, everything that I investigated turned out that he told me a pack of lies. And then one day when I was on my way home from the, um, from the McLeibel hearing, I went into St. Catherine's house, uh, the registry of births, deaths and marriages, which actually in the same, at that time was in the same street as the high court and looked through the death records and found that he had actually been using the identity of a child who died when he was eight years old. And at that point, you know, my, my world kind of fell apart really because, you know, I'd been in a relationship with someone for the best part of two years you think that if you're in a relationship with someone, you know them reasonably well. And here, here I was, I didn't know the first thing about him. I didn't even know his name. Um, and it also meant that, you know, you, you, if, if he's not real and I thought I knew him so well, how can anything, how can anybody else in front of me, how can I know whether they're real or whether they might be a police spy? Um, you know, it, it really, yeah, it really messes with your head. Years later, it became apparent that other women had suffered in the same way and police forces had colluded in these sham relationships. Helen Steele and Dave Morris are both due to testify to an inquiry into undercover spying set up by Theresa May when she was Prime Minister, which will examine the practice more broadly. And actually, Starmer himself has faced calls from activist groups to testify to the inquiry too. What did he know when he was Director of Public Prosecutions and what did he know about other cases involving evidence secured by undercover officers? There's more though. This is a really key moment, a moment of collision between past and present that Gabby talked about. We have a real clash here between the sort of people that Starmer had always defended in the past, you know, peace protesters, striking trade unionists, lots of radical progressive causes and the state, which we now know in the 1980s and 1990s was infiltrating not just criminal gangs, as people might expect, but also much more benign political activist groups, trade unions, radical grassroots movements, and and so on. And as DPP, Starmer did obviously have to work closely with the police and the intelligence services. That's part of the job. And that's why some of his more radical old comrades were, I think, surprised when he, he took it. It was seen as going over to the dark side. Mm. And that's really interesting because the stance that Starmer takes today goes against what he learned in those very early days of his human rights career. I think if there's one decision he's taken since becoming leader, which puzzles many of his sort of old legal friends and fellow travellers, it's his decision uh, last October to whip Labour MPs to abstain on the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Bill, which everyone calls it the Spy Cops Bill. And it is pretty controversial. It offers full immunity from civil or criminal prosecution to undercover officers who commit crimes in the course of maintaining their cover, you know, sort of not to be rumbled. Uh, and two Labour frontbenchers quit over his... Uh, abstention. Starmer's predecessor as DPP, Lord Macdonald, has publicly expressed concerns about the bill. So has Dominic Grieve, who was Attorney General, as we said, for much of Starmer's time as DPP. And rebels in the Lords included Baroness Helena Kennedy, his old friend and, and legal mentor, and um, his former Shadow Cabinet colleague, Shami Chakrabarti, Baroness Chakrabarti, who led the civil rights group Liberty in the noughties when he was its sort of go-to barrister. So hang on a moment, let's just be clear here. That's his predecessor, his direct political report, his legal mentor and his human rights ally. All of them now lined up against him on the spy cops issue. So Gabby interviewed all of them. This is Shami Chakrabarti. I can support the principle of undercover policing, of course. It's essential to our security, individual and national security. And further... I support the practical reality that that sometimes undercover, it's not just cops, um, it's undercover agents of the state, agents of MI5, MI6, the police and and, and other authorities, sometimes they're going to have to commit crimes in order to keep their cover. So ludicrous, I accept, uh, to expect someone to go undercover in a terrorist cell without potentially committing the crime of being a member of a banned organisation. That's the status quo. But but what isn't the status quo is the idea that once you've done that, you have total immunity from prosecution. But I don't do it with a with a golden ticket or license that will, you know, that will cover anything I do, regardless of whether it was it was proportionate or not. 
And my concern about the Spike Ops bill, long title, Covert Human Intelligence Sources, Open Brackets, Criminal Conduct, Close Bracket Bill, is that it goes just a step too far. It's a land grab. It doesn't put the existing complex arrangements on a, on a, just on a clear statutory footing, which to some extent would be fine. It goes further and grants that total immunity from, from both criminal prosecution and civil liability, which is important too for you know, third-party innocents who, 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 who get in the way and are collateral damage in a car chase or whatever it happens to be. This is possibly constitutionally the most dangerous piece of legislation that I've ever engaged with in my adult life. And she really thinks that Starmer is in the wrong place on it. The Labour Party should be the party of human rights. It has been the party that has brought in most human rights and equality legislation, you know, throughout the decades. And I think that if we want to be patriotic, which is apparently what so many people are encouraging us to be, there's nothing more patriotic in my mind, apart from the NHS, of course, than the rule of law. You can tell that she was dismayed, but she's also got experience of leading an organisation. Does she give him any sympathy? I guess leadership is always lonely, but part of leadership is about listening to friends and critical friends alike. And I think part of leadership is about explaining your... If you have changed your position on things that you've been associated with in the past it's as well to explain I just think people need to come with you in your in your thought process and in some respects this is um, a leadership that does so much of its working out in public I mean we've been I think we've probably seen rather too much briefing um, from leadership sources in recent months about first we're going to have a narrative and then we're going to have policy and you know what the narrative's going to be so in some respects there's been ironically so much showing of your workings in public and yet on on things like this I'm still at a loss to understand what the what the argument really is. Helen Steele, who went through the trauma of discovering that she'd been living with an undercover cop, told us that her big fear is that the spy cops bill could make it harder for women in her position to bring cases against the police. If it happened to women again in the future, it would basically prevent women from bringing such a case um, to give them to give officers basically legal I- immunity for anything and everything that they do. It's it's absolutely shocking that. Um, you know, anyone could think that's an appropriate law to pass. So I wanted to ask Gabby, why is Keir Starmer now so relaxed about this bill? Well, Labour says that in practice, immunity is just being granted behind closed doors anyway. So best to have it out in the open and on a statutory footing so you can ensure it's compliant with legal safeguards. But as we've heard, you know, not everyone is convinced. Some of his critics think it's pure political calculation. You know, he's worried about the Tories saying he's soft on national security, so he doesn't want to give them an opportunity to say that. But what struck me is that before he ever went into politics as DPP, he took a pretty robust approach to some issues that were causing civil liberties concerns. And he wasn't someone that kept home secretaries awake at night wondering what he was going to you know, argue with them about next. So I wondered whether working closely with intelligence and security services, both as DPP and before that as a, as a human rights advisor to the Northern Ireland Policing Board, had shifted his perspective. Did he come to think that some things were a bit more complicated than he'd thought in his 20s? We also heard from Ken MacDonald, now a Lib Dem peer and Starmer's predecessor, who was also accused of selling out when he joined the CPS. Yeah, everything changes. I mean, everything changes. And I guess this is part of the process that people outside see as part of the sellout, that you begin to factor in things that you hadn't thought about before. I mean, when you're considering the case of a death in custody, for example, you're not just stopping at the fact that someone has died in police custody. You're, you're, you're having to, to, to look into it from many different angles, including the angle of the police officers who were involved. So everything becomes broader, everything becomes more complex, and you're not just 
within a process which permits you to come to the conclusion that you feel you would like to come to emotionally, you're coming to a conclusion that you think is genuinely the right one from all these different perspectives. And that sometimes leads to a different conclusion. You know, you feel a, you feel a, a great sense of responsibility in that job that you, that you somehow, I mean, it surprised me. And I know from talking to Keir, it surprised him. But MacDonald, who's expressed reservations about some aspects of the spy cops bill himself, doesn't rule out some element of political calculation too for Keir Starmer. He's not DPP anymore. He's a he's leading a political party and he wants that political party to win the next election. He wants to be prime minister. So he will be making other judgments that he thinks assist in in that, that, those things happening. And, and they will be political judgments. I mean, I, I happen to disagree with him uh, about aspects of that bill, but I entirely understand why, from a political point of view, he, he's taking the position that he is. Changing things from the inside of the system sometimes requires compromises, and that's perhaps where Starmer parts company with the McLeibel too. They still regard him with great affection, but they're suspicious of conventional politics. I had a conversation with him where I expressed my concerns about what a loss he was going to be to people suffering oppression and injustice around the world. I mean, at the time, he was doing lots of death row cases in in, in Jamaica, keeping people uh, alive. I, I expressed concern that if he went over to the, the, the CPS, effectively, it would be a massive loss to, to people fighting for justice. And he said, is it the job that makes the man or the man that makes the job? I mean, I personally, I think the reality is that what, however good your intentions might be, if you step into the uh, establishment and become part of the establishment, you may succeed in creating a small amount of change. But I think the establishment shapes you more than you shape the establishment. So, Gabby, let's go over this because we've covered a lot of ground here. He's gone from fighting the case of Helen Steele, who was so horribly violated by an undercover cop. And after those years in the system and working closely with the police, Keir Starmer now takes a position which is a very long way away from his idealistic past. So what are you seeing? Keir Starmer would hardly be the only politician or indeed person whose, whose views have changed as they get older. But I think even as a young radical lawyer... Keir had a reputation in court for being very measured, very reasonable, very balanced. He didn't really do sort of passion and theatrics. He saw things from all sides. And in Northern Ireland, working first on the the private Lee Clegg case and then working for the policing board, I think showed him sides of national security issues that he hadn't seen before. He's also said in the past that that Northern Ireland was where he realised he could change change the operational tactics of the police much faster from inside the board. He could do things that would have taken him years to do, litigating against them from the outside. And I think he saw becoming DPP similarly as a chance to reform the criminal justice system from the inside in line with his beliefs. And I think he now feels much the same about the Labour Party. But as we heard Helen Steele say, power involves trade-offs. Getting your hands on the levers of actual change means you can do things, but it may mean getting your hands dirty as well. And in the end, it's all about what you achieve. You know, were the compromises that you had to make along the way worth it? And as we've heard in our third case, as DPP during the 2011 riots, Starmer presided over this flurry of cases that led to some really harsh sentences. In other words, it was what the CPS saw as the right of the community to feel safe that came first. But this question over whether a middle-aged white guy like Keir Starmer really can understand marginalised young black men won't go away. Last summer saw Black Lives Matter protests erupting across major British cities and around the world, and the statue of a slaver toppled in Bristol. If they'd happened when Starmer was in his 20s, he'd probably be the defence lawyer trying to get the protesters cleared. As DPP, he'd have been weighing up whether prosecution for criminal damage was in the wider public interest. But as Labour leader, he was required to be either for or against statue toppling, taking into account the interests of vulnerable groups denied justice and his own rather cautious law-abiding instincts. He also had to decide whether to publicly take the knee, something Labour's younger urban voters absolutely expected, but which might bomb in the red wall seats. So with all of these factors piling up last summer, Stammer does this TV interview in which he's asked about one of Black Lives Matter's best-known slogans, defund the police. And he says this. Nobody should be 
um, saying anything about defunding the police. I mean, and I would have no truck with that. I was director of public prosecutions for five years. I worked with police forces across England and Wales, bringing thousands of people to court. So um, my support for the police is very, very strong and evidenced in, in the actions I've, joint actions I've done with the police. There's a broader issue here. The Black Lives Matter movement, uh, or, or moment, if you like, internationally, is about reflecting something completely different. And it's reflecting um, on what happened dreadfully in America just a few weeks ago um, and showing or acknowledging uh, that as a moment across the world. It's a which side are you on moment. And Keir's answer is basically both sides. You know, he took the knee in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, but then he rejected one of its best known slogans. And Black Lives Matter in Britain hit back hard, issuing a statement saying Keir's an, a cop in an expensive suit. On identity issues, I think people want conviction, they want clarity, they want passion. And here he is trying to explain in his very reasoned manner, you know, it's a bit more complicated than that. Nazir Afzal told me that Starmer was really committed to diversity at the CPS. He backed Nazir up at times when he felt singled out for criticism because of his ethnicity. And it's worth saying, you know, Starmer was an ally for gay rights from very early on, interested in green politics, even before the McLeibel case. He ought to be comfortable with identity politics. This should, in a way, be, you know, his his home turf. But modern identity politics is, is very binary. You know, if you think of the slogans, trans women are women, defund the police, get Brexit done. There's no room for middle ground. There's no room for sort of reasoned argument. There's no room for, well, actually, it's a bit more complicated than that. And on the one side, this and on the one side, the other. He, by now, he's been in the job a year. He's definitely shown us that he can hurt Boris Johnson. But it seems like we end up concluding that he's just a bit too cautious or hasn't done a good job of telling voters who he actually is? I think the really clear thread through his career is protection of the vulnerable. And that's what human rights is about. It's saying these are the things that we hold sacred, your right to life, your right to free speech. And if someone powerful tries to take those away, then the law will step in. But the thing about human rights is they're very apolitical. They don't discriminate. Sort of the worst person on the planet has the same rights as the most saintly person. So you have to put your emotions to one side and focus on the principle. And that helps him to see vulnerability where it's not always obvious, because that's exactly what the, the police officers interviewing the Rochdale girls didn't do. They just thought those girls were trouble. You know, they brought their prejudices into it rather than looking at the facts. And so, you know, that can be an, a strength, that ability to focus on the, the factual argument. But what I think Starmer still struggles with is how to marry all of that with a political world that's all about emotions and where you're constantly being pushed to pick a side and to have have simple, clear views that everyone can understand, you know, leave or remain, Corbyn or Blair. His ability to see both sides of the question make him a great lawyer and it might well be useful in government. I mean, caution is not necessarily a bad thing, as we have seen over the past year. Um, but does it make a good leader of the opposition is the question. And there's something else, too, something from his childhood. When he was young, his mother was ill for a really long time and his father was really distant. And that Desert Island Dis interview revealed a lot, this awkward relationship with his dad and probably a sort of instinctive emotional caution. Baroness Helena Kennedy, Starmer's legal mentor when he was starting out as a barrister, told us how listening to that interview made her feel. If you listened carefully to Keir's Desert Island Discs, growing up wasn't easy for Keir. No. You know, he had a mother who was seriously unwell and struggled with a disability. And a dad who, who was obviously sort of somewhat cut off from his children, who, who was, adored his wife, was a devoted husband, but somehow didn't give as much of himself to his children. And so I, I think that the business of emoting too easily, when, when you live with somebody, I mean, I have, I have a close friend who was brought up with a very disabled sister. When, when you're in a family with someone who's got, who's, got, who's got something really seriously wrong with them, you don't feel that you can complain. You don't emote. You learn to close off your, 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 your own needs and, uh, and emotions. And so my feeling when I listened to Red Desert Islandists, I understood something about Keir that I hadn't as his colleague and friend before. Yes, that, there's a, just a little area of distance where he, which is self-protective. Mm. I think that is about um, being brought up in a family where the concentration of, of kindness was directed towards your mother mm. and she deserved it. Yeah. But um, 
but you couldn't ever complain. You, it makes you less expressive. So we started out by asking, who is Keir Starmer really? And this might be where we find at least part of the answer to our question, not in his career in the law, but in his upbringing. As for his legal career, we've seen that human rights is the thread running through it all and that if he was ever a radical, he's certainly a reformed one today. He was capable of pushing through progressive change, but he came to believe that change might happen faster from inside an organisation and he convinced himself that he could bend the world to his will rather than be changed by it. As he put it to Helen Steele of the McLibel II, is it the job that makes the man or the man that makes the job? Close colleagues, fellow travellers and political rivals all see that he's an exceptional lawyer, but not everyone is convinced that that counts when it comes to politics. We've learned that Starmer's legal career showed that he was adept, tactical, persuasive in front of a judge, but he rarely had to turn up the emotion and the passion because he didn't often have to convince a jury. Well, now he really does. Thanks so much for joining us this week. This episode was reported by Gabby Hinsliff, edited by David Taylor and produced by Matt Russell. And if you're enjoying this podcast, do give us a review. And there's also something else that you can do if you're finding what we do interesting. The newsroom where I work called Tortoise is a membership organisation, which means that you can join us. And I know that I say this every week but I'm going to say it again. It is genuinely a way for you to get involved in our ideas and our storytelling because being a member means that you can take part in our editorial meetings and give your input and shape the stories that we tell. And I've got a code for you guys, our listeners. So just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and for a half price discount, use the code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A 50. Thanks and I'll see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.